to 1 John. Be, a lot of my text will be coming from 1 John. I want to do a few readings before we get there. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as we work our way through Advent, uh, we've been spending the weeks contemplating hope, uh, the first week, peace, the second week, joy, the third week, and throughout this week, anticipating uh, our uh, meditation upon the love of God. Uh, it seems fitting to me uh, in many ways that just as we're approaching uh, our recognizing the incarnation, uh, that we're, we're trying to meditate and probe, as it were, the love of God. Uh, I've mentioned that peace is elusive. Uh, I talked about uh, with joy, we're likely to settle uh, for lesser joys. Uh, even our hope uh, can be uh, faint sometimes in this world. But when we come to the love of God, I think it perhaps is the most profound, uh, mysterious, and perhaps incomprehensible uh, of, the, of the Advent themes. And that's right. Uh, I think that it's last in our Advent observance because right at the point of where we're trying our best to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God, Christ comes. And he makes what is incomprehensible comprehensible. And so it's fitting that we're meditating on that today. The scriptures are filled with mandates and commands in regards to our love and to God's love as well. I was sharing with the young people in, from Ephesians this morning, kind of in line with the message. But Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, he acknowledges a stewardship he was given by God uh, of the Gentiles. Uh, I didn't go into it in depth with the young folks, but that's a pretty stunning thing to say. God has made me responsible for the Gentiles. I have a stewardship of all you Gentiles. And Paul took that seriously. And as he prays for them at the beginning of chapter, or in chapter 3, verse 14, and I want you to listen closely of all the things Paul might have prayed for the Gentiles he prayed for them to come to this full realization of the love of Christ. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, listen to this, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Amazing, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then he turns to God himself now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen God gave him a stewardship of the Gentiles and Paul is sharing what he's praying for those Gentiles. And as I was sharing with the young people, ultimately what Paul has in mind is the glory of the God who gave him the stewardship. 
And the means of manifesting that most clearly is for these Gentiles to know the fullness of the love of Christ And in that, being rooted in that, being transformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of the very God who gave him the stewardship. That must mean that something's critically important in regards to love. And I think it generally, it escapes us. It's profound and we struggle to comprehend what that means and what that is. To give you an example of that, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. You'll all remember this, but I want you to think of this in terms of the extraordinary uh, call that Paul is making here in regards to what love is. And you evaluate your own love according to what Paul says here, because I think he's moving us towards what the love of God looks like manifested in the life of the believer who loves. In fact, Jesus says that's the way the world will know we're his disciples if we love him and we love one another. So listen to this. Paul says, first of all, if I speak with a, let me pause here. Listen to this, especially because this is extraordinary. You think about someone who would have this, these abilities. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to, be, to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let me just pause. That's an extraordinary uh, possession of things to be considered nothing without love. Don't you agree? I mean, who would not want all of these things? Knowledge of all mysteries, of all knowledge. The, the willingness to lay down our lives, to give all of our possessions to the poor, to be able to speak in the, every language known to man and even in angelic language. Who would not want to possess all of those things? If you had them and did not have love, you would be nothing. That's the, that's the priority. Now listen to his description. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If their gift of prophecies, they will be done away with. If their tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, he's explaining, we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And listen to what he says. But now faith, hope, love 
abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's, that's what we're trying to get our minds around as we're contemplating the incarnation. And that is absolutely stunning in its implications. And it has been for me this week as well. So if you're not in 1 John, uh, go ahead and go there because most of the text I'll be using comes from there. But one of the striking things that John says, by the way, uh, John is... Uh, I call him the apostle of love. Uh, as far as we know in the scripture, John uh, is the only apostle to go all the way to the foot of the cross to behold uh, the sufferings of Christ. You remember Jesus commends his mother into the care of John there at the foot of the cross. And so stunning, so stunning was John's view of this event of Christ's suffering that from the rest of his days, he referred to himself in writing as the one whom Jesus loved. He doesn't call himself John. He was so overwhelmed with what he witnessed in regards to love from that day forward, he always thought of himself the one whom he loved. He saw it firsthand. Perhaps he was close enough to see the blood rolling down the cross. And from that day forward, I'm the one he loved. That's who's writing here, by the way. But John says something I think is one of the most profound short texts in all the Bible. But he says in 1 John 4, 8 this, The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. He says that again in verse 16, 1 John 4, 16. We have come to know and have believed in the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. I remember this as maybe an English class, but I remember this years ago. But, uh, and I was really struck by this because they were using this particular phrase to demonstrate the point. But is is a verb of being. If you say this thing is this, it describes the nature of the thing. It is a verb of being. And when John says God is love, he's saying something about the being of God. He's saying, he's saying that God is love. Now, trust me, John is presupposing here a right or at least some, some right definition of what love is. And it is an error very much evident in our day for men to embrace an incomplete or ignorant or even a corrupted view of love and in practice to reverse John's order so that men say that love is God. That's a very different thing. To say that God is love is saying something about the nature of God. To say love is God is saying something about the nature of love. Love is elevated as God. That's very, very different things. But that's what our culture has done. And the consequences, as we can all see, have been devastating. Homosexuality and so-called gay marriage have become accepted and even celebrated upon the claim that so long as these relationships are predicated on love and the consent of the persons involved, they are valid and by right ought to be Accepted. Already we're seeing hints 
of how this corruption and definition is also manifesting itself in the so-called polyamorous relationships. And even frighteningly, even I've heard in the last couple of years, even leaking over into, uh, of all things, pedophilia. If love is God, then you're opening the door to all sorts of perversions and corruptions. John makes it very clear and makes everything other than that an error in saying God is love. That's what, to me, I find almost incomprehensible. If God is love, then what is love? I mean, now I'm trying to define God himself. And that makes it incomprehensible. And so we're right up at the, at the celebration of the incarnation and we're, and we're blowing our own minds trying to get it around what love is. And God, God accommodates, this is my whole sermon in a, in a sentence, God accommodates and says, here it is, Christ. So that's jumping forward. So love, rightly understood, finds its roots in the very nature of God. In all of his attributes, his holiness, which I take to mean his utter, complete set-apartness. There is none like God. That's what holy means. If you and I are to be holy, as Peter says, but, but we're not set apart from others who are holy as well. We have counterparts here, but there is none like God. To say God is holy means to say there is no correspondent to God. He is utterly and infinitely and gloriously separate from everything, all the universe. This is that God. So he's essentially saying his, his attributes, therefore, are the expression of this holiness to its infinite perfection. So I'm saying here, if God is love, then he expresses that love infinitely and with perfection so the love of God is love means that love is perfection and so if you reduce that anything other than perfection then you've missed God and you certainly miss love for John to say God is love is to say more also than than to say God loves he does love but he's saying more than that it is to say that love properly understood, is essential to the existence and nature of God. I thought about this statement for a while, but if and when he acts, whether in compassion and mercy or in judgment or wrath, he acts from his own nature, which John says is love. Now, now go home and meditate on that one. Think of all that takes place in this world and has from the beginning of the world and understand that everything that has unfolded, whether permitted by God or directly brought about by God, is not inconsistent with his nature, which John says is love. So if your theology has to disregard the love of God from, to, to justify all the other attributes, you, you're, you're mischaracterizing God. That's why this is so stunning to me. Love. No act of God in history, however challenging it may be to our understanding, is or has been or ever will be, according to John's statement, contradictory to his love, which would be to be contradictory to his very nature. 
That's why this theme for our meditation is so profound and maybe to some degree so difficult to comprehend. What are we meditating upon? We almost get lost in it. Just as with every impulse and capacity rooted in our created in the image of God with the fall of humanity into sin and the subsequent darkening of our mind and understanding and the spiritual death accompanying that, we became blind to the nature of our creator to which those impulses correspond. Cut off from our creator, these impulses were corrupted and our understanding of them narrowed the created, we were created from and for the love of God, but now we've been blinded to his beauty, his glory. And so love and the human heart narrowed to become merely affections. And that felt only insofar as the thing or person of, of the, the object of that affection promises to be of some value to us or to our desires as they have been shaped by selfishness of the fall itself. Is it, in, is it any wonder that we find it difficult to comprehend the love of God? You know what struck me this Christmas particularly, maybe that ever, hasn't hit me ever, is that every theme that we're meditating upon has been corrupted by the fall. There is this barrier between these impulses we have and their correspondent who is God and we're cut off from that, and so we have these impulses, and we, don't, we can't find anything they correspond with. We shoot them over here into possessions and relationships, and we, we fire these impulses off all directions, but we can't get through that barrier, and so we never find the correspondent to those impulses that are a part of the imago day in us. That, that's, that makes the incarnation all the more critical. Because if that barrier is not removed, you and I go on all of our lives assigning these impulses, whether they be joy or whether they be hope, peace, joy, or love, we assign them to some, in some place where they don't find their home, as it were. That's what I meant when I said we're created from love for love, the love of God. But because we're cut off from God we express this capacity in all sorts of ways, even in corrupt ways, as we move farther away from God. We, we satisfy our desires and our, set our affections on those things that feed the carnal man because we're cut off. In fact, you know the scriptures say what one of the great obstacles to knowing the love of God is? 1 John 2, 15 through 16, John says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So the obstacle for you and I this morning of comprehending the love of God might be love of the world. That's, that's the correspondent we found for our affections. Our view has become horizontal exclusively and we find all of our satisfaction and we set all of our affections on the things in this world. 
And in doing so, we cut ourselves off, as it were, from knowing the love of God. It's what John says. In John 3, 18 through 19, he says this, The one who believes in him, this is the gospel of John, is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And what does he say? And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Love of the world and love for darkness. You can't, you can't have your affections set on, set on these things and know the love of God. You just, it doesn't happen. And that's our problem. Cut off in our sin from our Creator, this capacity for love having been corrupted to become now only affections, we grew accustomed to the darkness. And with no light visible to us in our blindness, we assigned all of this affection entirely to the things of this world and to those persons or things which we viewed as profitable for, to fulfilling all of our sinful passions and desires. As with peace and joy, we satisfied ourselves with reciprocal affections and built our lives from birth upon that fragile foundation. In our sin, we forfeited knowing the glorious love of God and loving as He loved and have accepted as a substitute the love of this world. Let me just reiterate something. We're all in that condition. Every single one of us we're born into that condition, cut off from the love of God, having this impulse and not knowing where its correspondent is, and we set our affections on everything around us and robbed the very God who created us for those towards Him, robbed Him of His own glory. Everybody in this room falls into that category from birth. And so we... Apart from the incarnation, we are in desperate straits, absolutely desperate, because now we have this impulse and we don't know how to satisfy it. And we're lost and wandering in this world trying to find its correspondent or the thing that it was built for, and it's not in this world. It's not in this world. However, this is why we're contemplating this theme. We're anticipating what are we going to do? And God makes a way now in the incarnation, the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Christ. He makes a way now of manifesting that love in a way that removes that barrier for us. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God is manifesting most clearly his love in the incarnation. I mean, we have scriptures, the prophets talked of the love of God for his people, but, but it says we're still groping, trying to understand and comprehend what the love of God is. And, and God makes it easy for us, as it were, and he sends his son. Here's the clear revelation of God's love. 1 John 3, 16, the correspondent to the gospel of John 3, 16 is interesting, but he says this, we know love, otherwise without this, by the way, we wouldn't know love, but we know love by this, 
that he laid down his life for us. He goes on to say, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brethren. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, by this, by this, this is the instrument or the means by which the love of God was revealed in us, he says, that God has sent his only son into the world that we may live through him. And this is love. And this is the love of God. Not that we love God. No, you, you didn't. You loved the world. He didn't, he didn't love you as a reciprocal to your loving him. You didn't love him at all. You loved the world. We all love the world. But he sent his son to die in our place so that we might know love. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. See, God, God manifests or he reveals now his love. In fact, his very nature, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates what? His own love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My point here is without the incarnation and the life of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you and I would still be in love with the world. In fact, so, so acclimated are we to that, that our flesh, even as Christians, will be, if we're not careful, it'll lean back towards this affection to the world. And the next thing you know, we'll become worldly and nominal in our Christianity because we're leaning back to old habits. As Peter said, we're like the dog returning to his vomit in that sense. But God has made a way for that not to have to happen. And to me, as we're contemplating the coming of Christ or the, or the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, and we're struggling to comprehend what is this love, God, as I said, makes it easy for us. And he sends love, as it were, in the body of a small child, of a baby. Here is love. Here is love. Watch, watch it manifests itself. Amazing. In fact, he speaks here, of the greatness of God's love. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great, you hear me quote this all the time, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. See how great a love the Father has for us. How great is it, John? It's such that we would be called his children. And not only called that, it's a fact we are. I love the doctrine, the, the doctrine of adoption, don't you? I'm not, I'm a legal son of God. And you want to talk about the love of God? That he should let people who loved the world and didn't give him love, that didn't reciprocate the very love to him that they were created for and robbed him of it all of their days, he, he makes, a, makes a way to receive them into his family. This is the love of God. John says, see how great a love this is. That he would call people like that children. <laughs> children. In fact, John goes on to say, in fact, we are. That's exactly what we are. And for this reason, the world whom we used to know and love doesn't love us anymore. <laughs> he says, they do not know us anymore because it does not know him. He says, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. 
That's what I've shared with the young people this morning from Ephesians. Of all the things Paul could pray, it seems as though he understood that the, the glory of God in the life of Ephesians rested upon them, them comprehending the height, depth, length, and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That, if you miss that, you miss the glory of God. And that's what Paul was praying for these Gentiles. And I think that's what John is trying to communicate to us through his epistle and even through his gospel. So God's love is great. I love this as well from 1 John. But did you know that God's love has the capacity to eliminate fear? That's one of my favorites. Fear. Uh, Hebrews says, all our lifetimes we were enslaved to the fear of death. From the day you were born, you were scared to die. And all your life, you were like a, a, a donkey being led along by a carrot trying to avoid dying. And you were terrified of it. And the devil manipulated us by threatening it, threatening it. And so we just healed along and we did whatever would preserve life longest. All your lifetime, the writer to the Hebrews says, you were enslaved to that. But when this love came, it eliminated that. You know what? Every Christian in this room should, should stand to their feet and shout, I will never die. I will put off this body, sure enough. But death has no grip over me anymore. It can take this body down into the dust, but it's going to be reconstituted someday in a glorified state. But I, as a believer, am never going to die. I've already died in Christ. It's what he's, it's what he's saying here. But listen to this, this verse. 1 John 4, 16 and, and 18. God is love and the, the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. By this, this is how love is perfected or made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, I think he means Christ here, as he is, Christ is loved by the Father, so are also are we in this world. So we're like Christ. We are loved by the Father just as the Father loved the Son and we're in this world today. Just as He loved the Son when He was in the world, just as He is, so are you in the world today, believer. You are loved by the Father. There is no fear then in love. Why? Perfect love drives out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. If you're in Christ, your punishment's taken away. Why are you afraid? I mean, I used to say this when I first became a believer, it felt to me like my entire Christian life, I was anticipating the, the, the cosmic hammer of God to crush me at any moment. And I wouldn't even have told you I believed in God, but there was something instinctive that made me feel like a fugitive on the run always. And I had people in my life say, well, that's just your conscience. And I remember I preached a sermon one time called Jiminy Cricket Theology. Let your conscience be your God. And I remember thinking early on, well, that's not going to work. That's what they would tell me. But, but I think it was an instinctive, almost an unawares instinctive recognition that I was under condemnation and I am a fugitive. And there's only judgment and it produces fear. But having been united to Christ, crucified with him, propitiation, wrath taken away, judgment taken away from me in Christ, that I no longer need to fear. 
Shouldn't be fear in our lives. That's what he's saying. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. He says later, strikingly in the last of that passage, the one who fears is not perfected in love. He's not complete yet. You haven't, you haven't understood the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God. You haven't grasped that yet. It hasn't sunk into your life because there's still fear there. And that means there's still, there, you're still thinking that you deserve some judgment that Christ didn't receive on your behalf. And so you're still fearful. That means love hasn't been perfected yet. You haven't, underst- you haven't understood the love of God in your life. On the cross, you still think that you are a, co- a co-defendant with Christ. You're not. He took the role of the defendant and took all the punishment. And when the love of God becomes more full and perfected in our lives, you are free from that fear finally because all my sin he paid for, not just a portion of it. That's why the incarnation is so critical to comprehending this love. So it eliminates fear, but God's love also and our love towards Him. Two things in these two verses. One is that our love for God is causal, is caused by His love for us. And that our love for Christ is by faith. 1 John 4, 19, he says clearly, we love because He first loved us. You know the word because is important there, right? It, it demonstrates causality. The reason for me loving God is Him loving me. I've already established I didn't love Him. I loved the world. I loved all the things created by him rather than him. And I put myself in the category of Romans 1.18 as those who have been given over because they glorified the created thing more than the creator. I was in that category and so were you. We didn't love God. But if we love him now, why is that? Because he first loved us. His love is the initiating factor in your loving him today. So, so don't... Don't boast in that you love the Lord today, not not boasting in the sense of you're doing it by your own strength, but be humbled by your love for the Lord because it is produced by His love for you as manifested in Christ's suffering on your behalf. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, I read this last week, I think. But in this, he says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes through, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this phrase, and though you have not seen him, you love him. Why? Because he first loved you. That's why you love him. I hadn't seen Jesus. I said this last week. I've never seen Jesus in my life, but I love him. And I didn't come up with that. I didn't just reason that out. He loved me and produced in me and opened my eyes and my heart to behold his glory. And I love Jesus now. That's what Peter's saying. You haven't seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So there is a, there is a call. Our love is caused by his love for us. And our love for him is the instrument of that causation is faith, which is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 5 through 8. This final thought this morning 
is God's love in us is demonstrated by our love for one another. In fact, Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. My conclusion is if you don't love one another, they won't have any, they won't have any warrant to think you are my disciples. So, so this is a serious uh, command here. 1 John 4.11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And if you say, well, how do we do that? Then I point you to 1 Corinthians 13. Because I said, if you caught that, I said, this is what the love of God looks like manifested in the life of a believer when he's loving others. Love is patient. Love is kind. All those lists. That's how we love one another. We ought to do that. Why? Because he so loved us. I, I, was, I was thinking this, and I made this application in terms of forgiveness and mercy, but how can, I, how can you withhold even love, but how, do you, how can you withhold that from other people when you are the recipient of that in abundance? You know the parable of Christ, uh, the parable he tells of the guy who owed the astronomical debt and couldn't pay it, uh, was forgiven the debt, and then he goes out, seems like the same day, and finds somebody that owes him a trifle and chokes them and strangles them and has them thrown in jail until they pay every dime. And I love the master's response when they haul him back before the master. He's, it's like he's stunned in the parable. Are you kidding me? I forgave you all that debt and you're going to drag this man into court for that little bit? And he reverses the decision. Okay, you go to jail. And you stay there until you pay every bit of that. And you'll be there forever because you can't ever pay that. And the guy that owes you a debt will someday be able to pay that debt and he'll be released. But not you. Because your debt's astronomical. How then do you withhold mercy from anybody, you having received that sort of mercy? I think the same is true of love. How can we withhold love from others, especially our brothers and sisters, whenever we've been such a beneficiary of the love of God? 1 John 4, 21, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must, must also love his brother and sister. Uh, that kind of love, even loving our enemies, don't you find that challenging? Uh, it's much easier to love those who love us, right? Of course, uh, that's the worldly love that says they provide something for me. Even if it's my comfort, my, my ego, whatever it is, I like being around them. I love them. And they like being around you and they love you. Well, that's the same as worldly love. We're, we're, we're gaining something from this relationship and therefore the, our love is built on our own selfish motivations. Uh, Jesus, Jesus' love as expressed was built on our good. Uh, even, even while they were killing him, he was saying in the language over and over, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. And in doing so, he was calling upon the very wrath that was due those sins they were committing. Even at that moment, he was calling for that wrath to be assigned to him. That's love. That's love. 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, listen to this closely. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Uh, John speaks very plainly, doesn't he? He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, I say all this to, I, I say all this this morning to try to communicate to us that apart from the incarnation, the life, 
righteous life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I would be destined for worldly love all our days. And at the end of those days, we would return to this earth and enter into an eternal judgment where there would be no love, no hope, no mercy, nothing for eternity. That's why, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we're meditating on the love of God, which is almost incomprehensible, and rightly so, because if it is his very nature, he is incomprehensible insofar as he hasn't already revealed himself. And so is Christ who has come to the world. You want to know the love of God? Look at Christ. Look to Christ. See what he did. See who he was. It is a remarkable thing that God has come to us in the earth to demonstrate his love. Stand with me this morning. I want to invite you back if you have opportunity this evening at 5.30. We'll be uh, observing the Lord's Supper with our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Uh, we'll be talking about those two things, uh, union and light, as we observe that. But I pray that God might answer Paul's prayer for the Gentiles, who is us, that we might know more fully the love and the, the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates the truth of that word for us. Lord, we are humbled to meditate and to consider not just the love that's expressed, but Father, the fact that by very nature you are love. And Lord, we ask forgiveness in our day today that we have so often defined you by our definition of love rather than defining love by who you are. And Lord, I do pray that our love amongst one another, brothers and sisters, and even our love for enemies would be more and more conformed to the, the love Christ demonstrated on our behalf. Lord, help ours to be a sacrificial love, a love, uh, a love that would endure a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that has as its ultimate goal God's glory. Help us to be transformed in that. Bless those who've come today, Father, and as we take a few moments just to meditate in our own hearts, to pray and to seek your face, Lord, I pray that you might open the hearts of every person in this room to what their need is today, their greatest need, and that they might yield to what you speak in those moments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.